Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, South Calgary, and Airdrie. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Today I'm starting a new sermon series from the Gospel of Matthew, and we will be studying uh, this book of the Bible over the next few months, uh, dwelling on the life, ministry, teachings, and the finished work of Jesus will complement our other sermon series that Pastor Henry has been doing on the book of Romans. The Gospel of Matthew, as you know, is the first book in the New Testament, and there's a reason for that. It serves as a great bridge as we transition from the Old to the New Testament. It connects the story of Israel with the story of Jesus. They're not two different stories, but merely a continuation. Well, many Christians have a disconnect in their minds and don't fully comprehend the relationship between the two Testaments. We have a mental conception that the Old Testament is ancient and archaic and makes little sense. And all of a sudden, we have the New Testament when Jesus comes into the scene and shows us the true character of God and the good news of salvation. That, I tell you, is a complete misunderstanding. One storyline runs through the Bible that brings both the Old and the New Testaments together. All the aspirations and longings of the Old Testament are seen as fulfilled in Christ. The entire story of the Old Testament leads to one destination, Jesus Christ, who is God in flesh. Therefore, Jesus is the climactic figure of the Old Testament. Without him, this book will make no sense. The coming of Jesus confirms that we have a God who keeps his promises. Advent is a season of waiting. And we wait with expectation, trusting in the character of a God whose promises cannot and will not fail. So here in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew reveals Jesus to us. He gives us the identity and the character of the Messiah. And if you think about it, knowing Jesus ought to be the foremost passion of the Christian life. There's nothing greater than that. We cannot be stagnant in our knowledge and our experience of Jesus. It ought to keep growing and maturing. And studying the Gospels is a great way to get to know Jesus more. Matthew, in his opening chapters, offers a captivating portrayal of Jesus. And over the next few weeks, we will dig deeper into it. We're going to begin with a passage of Scripture that many Christians overlook. We don't read it because uh, it appears to be tedious, and we want to get to the action-packed narratives. The part I'm referring to is a long list of names also called the genealogies that seem like tongue twisters. Do they have a deeper meaning? Why do they come up so frequently in the Bible? An average person today cannot name their great-great-grandfather or grandmother's name. But Matthew starts off with a 2,000-year ancestry of Jesus. Now, we are calling our Christmas concerts next week in Family Tree, And to prepare us for this coming weekend, we're going to 
explore the family tree of Jesus. I'm going to ask you to stand as we read from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And I'm going to do you a favor. Let me do the reading on behalf of all of us. Otherwise, this can get extremely chaotic. (laughs) Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of uh, Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of uh, the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, uh, Jeconiah was the father of uh, Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Father God, we thank you for the inspiration of your word. And we believe that uh, all of your word is inspired, even the genealogies. And what we read are not just names, but these are real people with stories whom you used in unfolding your salvation plan. We pray, Lord, that you will give us uh, deeper insights into this uh, passage, that we will come to know the purpose why you had this in the Scripture. And even as we recount uh, the faithfulness of God as the promise-keeping God, we pray our faith will be strengthened and encouraged today. So come and speak to us in the power of your Spirit. We ask this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. They say one of the most common opening lines of modern day fiction are these words. It was a dark and stormy night. Now this introductory statement has been uh, so abused that a group of literary critics have formed a club called Dark and Stormy Night Club. And they present awards each year for the worst opening lines of books and essays. 
You know, as you read Matthew's opening lines, you wonder, what was he thinking? Here he is presenting an exciting, all-important account of the life of Jesus, but opens it with a list of names. How can you really grab someone's attention with that? Could he not make his opening words a little more catchy, engaging, something that will spellbound people? Uh, Starting a book with a long list of names may not be our cup of tea, but not so if you were from the ancient Middle East. Let's not forget who Matthew was writing this book to. It was to a predominantly Jewish audience. And there was no better way to get their attention than by starting with the ancestry of Jesus. Here's some background information for you. Uh, One of the foremost uh, characteristic of the intertestamental period, that is the time between the Old and the New Testament, is huge messianic expectation of being under one oppressive rule after another. The people of Israel were yearning for God's intervention, that God would fulfill the promise to send the Messiah, the Deliverer. And there were several people who made false claims that they were the Messiah, and thus were misleading so many. To the people who wondered, who is this obscure carpenter from Nazareth who died on a cross, and why should we listen to him? Matthew gives a great response. This is why you need to pay attention to Jesus. Look at his pedigree. Pastor Tim Keller points out, Matthew doesn't begin the gospel with the words, once upon a time. That is the way fairy tales and legends begin their work. But this was no work of fiction. Matthew was presenting a a historical account and establishing the fact that Jesus came in flesh and blood, that he had a family tree like we all do. The entire gospel narrative is grounded in history. We who come from an individualistic culture, we recommend ourselves with our degrees and qualifications, our accomplishments and experiences. But that's not how things functioned in the ancient world. For in those times, you appealed to your family roots to gain credibility. So more than a genealogy, Matthew is giving a resume of Jesus to show that he indeed has the right spiritual pedigree to be the most anticipated person in Jewish history. The names are grouped into three neat categories. 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 generations from the Babylonian exile to the coming of Christ. Seven is a number of perfection in the Bible. 14 is two times seven which means this is signifying total perfection. We have three sets of 14 here, making this entire story flawless. So all through the history of Israel, we see God's providential hand, making it possible for Jesus to come into the scene at the appointed time. What this tells us is God's plan of salvation wasn't an afterthought. God didn't wake up one fine morning and said, oh, I'm going to save the world today. Let me do something about it. Rather, what we see is a God who is carefully orchestrating his plan. 
that he had thought through even before the foundations of the world were laid. This was a, a well-crafted plan of God's unfolding salvation. It was executed meticulously. Now, what is true of history is also true of our individual lives as well. Before you arrived in the scene, God had you in mind and conceived the plans that he has for your life. And now he is carefully and meticulously unfolding his plans in our individual lives as well. Now, as you scan through this uh, genealogy list of 46 names, you see some familiar names, some unknown names, and some controversial names. They all were part of the family tree of Jesus. And as you think about your own family tree, I have some good news. I have some bad news. Here's the good news. We all have famous people in our family lineage, whether we know it or not. Just this past week, I came across two people who knew their ancestry quite well. One of them said she comes from the family of Abraham Lincoln. The other person said uh, they are from the lineage of the great uh, missionary statesman, David Livingston. But what I believe is, if you go back long enough, uh, we all can trace ourselves to someone popular and influential. So that should make us feel better. Ready for the bad news? The bad news is, we all have some jerks in our family lineage too, <laughs> and you don't even have to go back far to find them. <laughs> I don't know who you are. We all come from dysfunctional families. No one has an unblemished family tree. That was true of Jesus. It's true of every single one of us. Now, there were two key figures in the Old Testament who show up in the genealogy of Jesus, Abraham and David. Our text opens with these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And when God called a man named Abraham, he set him apart to play a significant role in his plan of salvation. God's promise to Abraham was simply breathtaking. Out of him and his lineage, God was going to bless every other people group in the world. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. You find these words in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, where we see the calling of Abraham. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This promise to Abraham is indispensable in understanding the biblical narrative and our Christian mission today. For this is a unifying promise that encapsulates the purposes of God all through history. Abraham had to leave his own family, but in exchange will receive or gain a new family, a posterity, and he would become 
the father of multitudes of people. Ironically, Abraham and Sarah did not even have a single child for a very long time. She was unable to conceive, and age was not on their side. And to this barren couple, God makes this incredible promise that their children and their lineage will be like the stars in the sky. How is this possible? Finally, after years and years of waiting, comes the promised child, Isaac. This was just the immediate fulfillment of God's grand promise, but there was more to come. God was preparing a group of people set apart to unfold His salvation plan. And out of this people group called the Israelites will come the Savior who will bless all the nations of the world. In fact, that is the emphasis of the promise to Abraham. The blessings of Israel will spill over and result in the blessings of the nations. Unfortunately, the Jews became an ethnocentric people. They forgot the mandate given to them to be a blessing to the nations. And they became a self-centered people group who wanted nothing to do with the world around them. Now, how will this promise to Abraham be ultimately fulfilled? How will the blessings of Israel be transferred to the nations? Matthew is saying in his gospel account, it is in Jesus alone this is possible. For everything, everything that God promised to Abraham that Israel failed to experience will be fulfilled in Christ because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Matthew, the most Jewish of the four gospels, unfolds the mission of God that the blessings of God will overflow from Israel to the nations of the world. For the living God of the Bible is a missionary God who wants to bless all the families of the earth. And the coming of Jesus has a universal scope. And that is why I firmly believe this. Global missions is not just one small department in the church. It is the heartbeat of the entire church. It ought to be our pulsating passion as a community because the church exists to bring the nations to the worship of Christ. Jesus, as the true son of Abraham, brings the blessings of God to every people group in this world. Now, the second prominent figure in our list is King David, the most popular king of Israel. And like Abraham, God raises David from obscurity, and he comes to a place of prominence as the king of Israel. Now, God also made a covenant with David. You find uh, these words in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, where we see the Davidic covenant. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this is an unconditional covenant. 
This is a promise. It had nothing to do with David's obedience or the obedience of his descendants. But God takes it upon himself to bring this to pass. God promises David a son who would establish a kingdom that will last forever. Now, who is this son referring to? It can't refer to David's immediate son, Solomon, because as you see in history, after Solomon's prosperous rule, there was a civil war between the north and the south, and the kingdom splits into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And after some time, because of continuous rebellion, foreign rulers attack the divided kingdoms. Assyria takes control of the northern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah gets deported to Babylon. And that, in fact, is the end of the lineage of kings from David, the end of monarchy in Israel. For centuries, they didn't have a king from the lineage of David on the throne. And ironically, during Jesus' time, the Roman Empire made Herod the king of the Jews, a namesake, puppet-like figure who was not even purely Jewish in his ancestry. So what happened to the promise made to David? How will David have a son who will establish a kingdom that will last forever? That was the question in the minds of people during Jesus' time. The time between the Old and the New Testament called the intertestamental period lasted for 400 years. 400 years of silence. No word from God. No prophetic message. No dreams or visions. And godly people in Israel wondered whatever happened to the promise of God made to Abraham and to David. They would have read passages in the scripture like Psalm 89 where it says, You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Faithful people, godly people, wrestled with these promises. Have they become void? Have they been nullified? You know, has God's promises failed once and for all? These were the questions in the minds of godly Israelites during Jesus' time. But as they get to Matthew's gospel and read its opening words, they find the words of Matthew striking because Matthew is saying in his gospel, our God is a promise-keeping God. He keeps his word and his covenant. For Jesus is the promised son of David, the Messiah who has come to launch a kingdom that will never end. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And his kingdom is not like the political kingdoms of this world, but it is an unshakable spiritual kingdom. Now let me summarize what I've said so far. What do you see in the very beginning of Matthew's gospel? Matthew is intentionally presenting to his audience that Jesus is the king in the lineage of David, and he is the promised seed of Abraham who will bring blessings to all the nations. Now, how does the gospel of Matthew finish? With the great commission in Matthew chapter 28. 
you listen to these familiar words, Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What is Jesus saying here? All authority has been given to me. Jesus is the rightful king. He is sovereign. All authority belongs to him. He has no rival. No one can even come close. Jesus has conquered all his enemies, and he will one day make them his footstool. He is the undisputed king. What else does Jesus say? All authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's the promise made to Abraham, that through him, all the nations will receive the blessing. The scope of Christ's coming is universal. In respect of geography or culture, we all benefit from the coming of Jesus. So Matthew begins and ends his gospel on the same note. So it pays to study genealogies, isn't it? I love it. Here's something else I want to point out that's really cool. What is the purpose of this genealogy? To show the spiritual pedigree of Jesus. As the first century folks read this account, they would have been astounded to see that Jesus came from the right lineage. Lineage of Abraham, check. Lineage of David, check. So the purpose of the genealogy was to impress people with the respectability of one's roots. And so far, so good. But there's something else that is striking in this genealogy list that is unusual for those times. And that is the mention of the names of five women. This is not normal in a patriarchal society. Women don't make it to the genealogy list. Certainly not five of them. But again, we see Matthew is a skillful writer. He is doing something deliberate to make a point. Matthew is not just highlighting the well-known matriarchs of Israel like Sarah, Rebecca, or Leah. He's very careful in who he is highlighting. You see five interesting characters. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Every one of them are controversial. They all have tainted reputation. And with the exception of Mary, they all had questionable ethnicities. And they also are part of the family tree of Jesus. So Jesus' family tree is not spotless, pristine, lineage of great people, elite people, perfect people. No, this is not a sanitized version by any means. There are skeletons in the closet, and Matthew was not going to hide them. He says, bring them on, let the world take a look at it. Now, let me issue a warning here. We're going to get to some R-rated stuff. I tell you, this isn't some sleepy genealogy list. Who was Tamar? Tamar was a Canaanite woman whose Jewish husband was dead, and she had no children. So what does Tamar do? 
She pretends to be a prostitute and tricks her own father-in-law, sleeps with him, gives birth to twin boys, and one of them gets drafted into the lineage of Jesus. Who was uh, Rahab? Rahab did not just act like a prostitute, for she was a Canaanite prostitute. She, in fact, ran the whole red light district in Jericho. And she's known, well known for hiding the Israelite spies in her brothel and helping Joshua in the conquest of Jericho. And the prostitute Rahab also gets a prominent place in the genealogy of Jesus. Who was Ruth? She was a Moabite. Do you know who are the Moabites? They were Lot's descendants. You read this in the book of Genesis. And they were considered to be a cursed people group. How did they come to exist? Genesis tells us that Lot's daughters get their father drunk, sleep with him, and get conceived. And out of this incestual relationship came the Moabites. Some of you are wondering, are you kidding me? These kind of stuff are in the Bible? Yup. <laughs> what does Ruth do? I don't have time to go into this entire story, but basically she sneaked into a man's bedroom when he was sleeping in bed, made her way inside his blanket, and startled the guy, and that was her way of saying, won't you marry me? <laughs> what a way to propose. Every one of you here are wide awake, so I'll keep going now. Do you know who is uh, Bathsheba? She was a victim of sexual abuse. If there was a Me Too movement back 3,000 years ago, she will be one of the victims to be highlighted. Matthew doesn't even give her name in the genealogy list, but heightens David's sin by saying she had been Uriah's wife. Look at the last part of verse 6. I find this fascinating. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That seems like an unnecessary detail in what is supposed to be a, a genealogy list that will build up someone's credentials. That's rubbing salt on the wounds. Don't just call her Bathsheba, but twist the knife by saying she once was Uriah's wife. Matthew, what are you doing? Are you not supposed to make Jesus' resume look good? Instead, you're putting the royal affair on public display, washing Dirty laundry in public. David used his power to advance his agenda. He knew Uriah very well. He was one of his faithful men who served him wholeheartedly. But David had his eyes on Uriah's wife, forces her to have sex. She becomes pregnant. So David gets Uriah killed in a carefully planned setup to cover up his own infidelity. Bathsheba becomes David's wife. And later, Bathsheba has another son with David whose name is Solomon, and he becomes the next king in the lineage of Jesus. Can this get any more messier? And to cap all of this, we have a teenage girl from a small town who gets pregnant without a ring on her finger. So what do we have here? We have deceit, incest, prostitution, Sexual abuse, affairs, murders, teenage pregnancy. If you think your family line was messed up and dysfunctional, think again. 
And I don't want to be just hard on the women in that genealogy list alone, because when you look at the lives of the men in the genealogy list, they were equally screwed up too. <laughs> so Jesus, Jesus our Savior, came from a totally flawed, dysfunctional family. But he redeemed them so they can play a role in his grand story. And therein is the good news. It is true today. Jesus is still a redeemer. And if you think you're messed up, that you came from a dysfunctional family and you don't have the right background and pedigree, if you feel beaten down by the things that you have done in the past, give your life to Jesus because Jesus specializes in taking what is broken and worthless and turning them into something of great value. And just as he took those broken people in the Old Testament and inherited them into his own family, that he would not hide their names, but publicly acknowledge them as part of his ancestry. In the same way, when we give our lives to Jesus, he's not ashamed to name us in his family tree. So it doesn't matter what our past is or what we have done. Jesus adopts us into his own family, gives us the privilege of being called sons and daughters of God. That is the true meaning of Christmas. Matthew, in giving his uh, genealogy, he's not only establishing the credentials of the king, but also gives us insight into the nature of his kingdom. For Jesus came for all people, kings and prostitutes, elite and outcasts, famous and unknown, Jews and Gentiles. Matthew wants to show what the Apostle Paul would later teach in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. Not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. And if you think you are righteous, that you have it all together, that your life is just perfect, then Jesus has nothing to offer you. He will send you away empty-handed. But it is when we acknowledge that we need help that we need forgiveness, that we need his grace. And when we place our faith in him, that he invites us to become part of his spiritual family. Let me say this in closing. God is a promise-keeping God. He will always come through. You can count on him. No matter what your circumstances are, if God has given you a promise, hold on to it. Hold on to it because he will not fail you. He's a faithful God. The greatest promise of the ages was to send a Savior to redeem us from our sins. And that's what we celebrate during this Advent season because God kept his promise. The genealogy of Jesus confirms this. 
It's not about how special those people were, but it's about how faithful God was to unfold his plans through their messed up lives. And nothing has changed 2,000 years later. He still works through imperfect people to extend his family tree. Because it's not about us. Ultimately, it's all about him. He receives all the glory. I'm going to ask all of us to stand. I want to give an opportunity for us to just close our eyes and reflect on what you've heard and what the Holy Spirit has impressed on our hearts today. And there are some of you here, you fret over your past. You blame your family for where your life is today. And God wants to speak to you that he is still a great redeemer. That nothing has happened to you in the past can keep you from the future that God has in mind for you. And this is an opportunity for you to bring your lives in complete submission to him and ask him to take charge over your life. And for the rest of us who are believers, this is an opportunity to remind ourselves that God still works through imperfect people. And he wants to use us as his ambassadors so others can come into his family tree. And this season of Advent is an opportunity for us to be those ambassadors, whether it's through the concerts that are coming up, our Christmas Eve service. There's so many outreach events happening in our church. It's an opportunity for us to be able to ask God to use our lives to bring others into the kingdom. So let's maintain a moment of silence so we can pray from the depth of our hearts, and after that, I'll close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for being a great redeemer. That you take things that are rejected and broken and you transform them into things of great value. Thank you for the work that you have done in each of our lives. For where would we be without your grace? For you reached out to us personally. You redeemed our lives from the pit of hell. You brought us out so we can be trophies of your grace. I pray for any person here who is living under condemnation of the past. We ask that you will remove those negative effects and give them the confidence that comes from knowing you and receiving a true and new identity in Christ. The Lord, you would do a supernatural work in their hearts even now by breaking that bondage, by removing the chains that's holding them back and opening their eyes to see your warm, unconditional love. Would you put your arms of love even now around them and welcome them into your family? 
God, we pray for us as a church as we are entering into the Advent season. There's so many opportunities to share about Jesus with others. May we be faithful in the small doors that you open for us to be good ambassadors of the gospel, to share about what Jesus has done. We pray for our Christmas concerts next weekend. We pray for the many outreach events that we will be doing during December, that every one of them will be an opportunity to exalt the name of Jesus, to proclaim the reason for his coming. That, Lord, you will be magnified and exalted in our church. And you receive all the glory, honor, and praise. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen.